everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 55 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'm your host today. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. If it's your first one, then welcome and if not, then I am glad you are back to learn more about all things black history, Caribbean history and everything else beyond that. So today's episode is called Barbados, A New Republic. And I know if you are a religious listener and you listened last week, you might be expecting Christmas traditions from the Caribbean. However, this week was a big week. Well, last week, actually, um, because these episodes come out on a Monday. But it was huge. Barbados became, you know, the world's next newest republic. And we're going to break down exactly what that means today, what it means, um, you know, in definitions of a republic as opposed to what they were before, thinking about that, what me- what that means for Barbados, what it might mean for other Caribbean countries, islands, um, and I guess what it means as well for, like, Caribbean people of the diaspora that live maybe in Britain um, as you know, Barbados kind of free the colonial legacy that Britain left, um, having been colonised by Britain and previously quote-unquote ruled. And we're going to get into like what all these terms mean and what it actually means for Barbados now, because a lot of people are celebrating. But if you ask a lot of people why they're celebrating, I don't know if they can break it down for you. Before I did the research for this episode, I couldn't break it down for you but I know now, so I'm going to do just that. Today's episode is actually going to be split into three parts. Firstly, we're going to think about the history of Barbados from its very beginnings, or, you know, what we have of its very beginnings, to independence from the British in 1966. And then our third part will be becoming a republic, and what does this mean? So we're going to be thinking firstly about, you know, this island nation of Barbados, in the southeastern Caribbean Sea, capital and largest town being Bridgetown, um, and, you know, where that all began. So, initially, it was actually inhabited by indigenous people, of course, um, Amerindians arriving from Venezuela, known as the Arawaks, and they were an agricultural people. They grew cotton, cassava, corn, peanuts, guavas, papayas. They also used woven cotton for armbands and hammocks, uh, cassava, which was ground and grated to be made into something called casarip, which was a seasoning used in cooking. They used harpoons, nets and hooks to fish for food. Obviously, Barbados being an island surrounded by water, that was ideal. However, in around the year 12,000, the Arawaks were actually conquered by a people called the Caribs, who were also another indigenous population. They were said to be taller and stronger than the Arawaks, and they were incredibly skillful bowmen and used powerful poisons to paralyze their prey. So when we're thinking about, you know, the discovering, quote unquote, of the island of Barbados, we're thinking about, well, I'm thinking about the Amerindians that arrived um, in the earliest days, um, the Arawaks and then the Caribs. But, um, you know, the powers that be on this European side of the world might think about the Portuguese who came en route to Brazil and quote-unquote discovered the island of Barbados. Navigator Pedro A. Campos 
named it Los Barbados, uh, meaning bearded one, after the island's fig trees, which have a beard-like appearance. Um, and the Portuguese didn't actually like claim it as theirs or claim it for their um, monarch at the time. They actually just, quote-unquote, discovered it and, and moved on. And then in 1625, the first English ship arrived under the command of Captain John Powell. May 14th, 1625 to be precise, and the island was claimed on behalf of King James I. Now, King James I um, is the monarch that came after Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth I, um, which was the end of the Tudor period. So this is the start of the Stuart period. And I find it very interesting because the Tudors and the Stuarts were people that I learned a lot about in school and nobody ever taught me about them carving up the Caribbean and claiming lands and islands for themselves. It's always kind of like this imagery of, and I'm thinking about, there's a film about Elizabeth I where um, I think her advisors or the people, is it whoever it was, the um, the voyager at the time, the navigator, comes back with all these like, tropical goods like oranges and gold and tobacco from these foreign lands um, and it's never really actually spelled out as this is the violent, brutal colonisation that was occurring in this period. So anyway, this island, Barbados, is claimed for King James, um, the first of England, um, and then we fast forward um, nearly two years on, on the 17th of February 1627, Captain Henry Powell lands on the island with a party of 80 settlers and 10 enslaved people um, because the um, slave traders started with the Dutch um, and I think they had like given these enslaved people um, to the British uh, captain um, and they landed in Holtown, formerly known as Jamestown, after King James I. Um, and the colonists, they established a House of Assembly in 1639, um, and it was the third ever parliamentary democracy in the world, actually. Very interesting, that. Considering we fast-forward to 2021, and it's now um, properly, properly a democratic state, shall we say, with no, no monarch. Boo! <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, people with good financial backgrounds and social connections with England were allocated land um, in Barbados and across the Caribbean. Um, and with a, within a few years, a lot of that land had then been deforested to make way for, drumroll please, plantations. Tobacco and cotton mainly. However, by the 1630s, sugar was um, a big exporter um, in Barbados and in the majority of the Caribbean and also the southern states of America too. Barbados was actually the birthplace of British slave society. So, you know, when we're thinking about Barbados now cutting ties with this um, relationship they have with Britain and this kind of colonial legacy that lives there, this runs deep. This is the first slave society, Britain's first. And that by slave society, it kind of means that everyone on the island essentially has some relation to this kind of, yeah, slave society, whether you're an enslaved person, you're of the planter classes, or you're, you know, a landowner, a propertyer. Um, there is kind of, everyone is like in relation to essentially slavery and these tobacco, cotton, sugar plantations, essentially. 
Um, so this is something that's very deep rooted into the island because prior to that it was um, the indigenous people um, and they were just on the land um, essentially with their own systems, their own beliefs, their own practices um, and then the Europeans come to quote-unquote civilise and bring in these systems, these heavily capitalistic systems um, to turn Barbados into a slave society, essentially. And to do the largest fast-forward that I've probably ever done on this podcast, I love to give context and to really set the scene, but I am fast-forwarding to the end of the slave trade in 1807. Slavery still existed um, on the island, and actually in 1816 there was a notable rebellion the Bossa rebellion which I need to do an episode on when that came up in my research I was like I've never heard of this before I think being Jamaican my understanding of the Caribbean is very Jamaican centric um and I am I'm not really ashamed to say that because it's just a fact of life but I am ashamed to say that I haven't yet challenged and tried to change that so I am now um and hopefully we can bring some more episodes about other islands that aren't Jamaica um but the Bossa Rebellion um insane we will have an episode on in the new year because I have to read more about it and obviously we'll share that with you but 120 enslaved people died in combat or were immediately executed after this rebellion and another 144 were brought to trial and executed after the rebellion was unfortunate or I will have to tell you it was unfortunately um like squashed um, the remaining rebels were actually shipped off the island. I'm not sure where they went. I just kind of got a summary sentence. So, yeah, tune in for the Bossa Rebellion episode. That will be coming in 2022. So, another fast forward. 1834, slavery was abolished, followed by a four-year apprenticeship period, similar to other kind of British-speaking, British-colonised Caribbean islands, which I've mentioned before, when slavery was abolished, the enslaved African people were not just let free, they were actually given four years to do this like apprenticeship period. And, you know, apprenticeships, the word now even has negative connotations of just poor pay and crappy conditions. Um, and that's exactly what it was. Um, but these now free men continued to work literally 45 hour weeks without pay in exchange for living conditions, um, like tiny huts or you know small kind of structures made out of wood um on the plantations or very near to by plantation owners um to essentially keep up the with the trades whether it was cotton tobacco or sugar i think sugar was on the decline by then and jamaica had actually taken over and some of the other islands um however this kind of practice of heavy agricultural labor very very poor living conditions and low pay continued until around 1838 um, and that's when it was actually celebrated and at that point around 70,000 Barbadians of African descent took to the streets in celebration and so that was just to kind of set the context of Barbados in this kind of British colonial period essentially slave society lots of slavery lots of enslaved people um, and then coming out of that you've got a class of people of uh, now Barbadian of African descent, um, people that were labourers, um, worked in agriculture essentially, uh, were widely kind of uneducated in that kind of formal sense of school. Um, and now we are moving on. Another big jump. I'm trying to get us to 2021 as quickly as possible. Um, but our second section, Independence from the British, 1960. 
six. So in 1961, internal autonomy was granted from the British um, and the island gained full independence in 1966. And what this kind of internal autonomy means was that it was kind of like a really slow changeover of hands. So 61 is where the British kind of say, you know, this is all you now, Barbadian people. Um, although a lot of Barbadian people at the time would have been... Um, of uh, descent from enslaved African people as well as Europeans. Um, but, you know, internal autonomy was granted to those people. Um, but it maintained ties with the British monarch. Um, and they are represented in Barbados by the Governor-General and they are a member of the Commonwealth. Um, this is in 1966. The Queen, or whoever the British monarch was then at the time, was their head of state. And this is what some of the changes have come in now, but I'm just going to talk about 1966, just to, you know, keep it simple. Um, the first leader of Barbados as a free nation, actually, was the Right Honourable Errol Walton Barrow of the Democratic Labour Party. And the other major political party in Barbados is the Barbados Labour Party, which the current Prime Minister, Mia Motley, is leader of. Um, so there's the British, sorry, the Barbados Labour Party, and then the Democratic Labour Party. I'm sure that must get confusing. I wonder what they actually call the two, like, colloquially. Because I'm sure... Maybe DLP and, like, BLP, maybe. I, would, I don't know. Anyway. Um, independence, in this case, just like a lot of Caribbean islands, kind of seems to be just granted. I've kind of sold that to you as if, you know, the British were like, all right, yes, it's time. You can have your freedom now or your partial freedom, because the Queen is still head of state, um, because there was obviously no big war, you know, America had a big civil war, um, and, no, not civil war, sorry, war of independence, um, and that was kind of like a big boom, and then it was like, okay, the winners are the now owners of this country, but in the Caribbean, um, and for the most part in kind of independence that was gained in, like, the 60s and 70s, and even the 80s, um, there was actually just decades of political work by uh, Barbadian people that led up to this point. Um, so, for example, um, you know, prior to 1961, in the 1930s, most notably, um, emancipated enslaved peoples actually began a movement for political rights because it was only the propertyed classes who had the right to vote initially, um, and they actually made up only like 30% of the population. So more than 70%, um, most of them disenfranchised women um, and, you know, people that didn't own properties, which would have been the descendants or actually enslaved Africans, uh, formerly, sorry, enslaved African people. Um, they were excluded from the democratic process, which I don't think means you've got a true democracy there. Um, so yeah, in the 1930s, these kind of movements or political rights began um, and this kind of occurred with the creation of political parties like the Democratic Labour Party and Barbados Labour Party, um, as they use these parties as a way to kind of fight for their political freedoms. Um, so from 1958 to 1962, Barbados was one of 10 members of the West Indies Federation, which was an organisation um, that didn't work out in the end. Some people say due to kind of nationalistic attitudes, um, and a lot of their members uh, as British colonies kind of had 
very limited uh, legislative power because they were still tied to this monarch that was actually in charge kind of thing. Um, that kind of dissolved um, and then Barbados went back to its like former status of a self-governing colony as opposed to being part of this federation. Um, but obviously, as we've mentioned, 1966, they negotiate their own independence at a constitutional conference with Britain uh, in the June of that year, and then that kind of passes over uh, by November of 1966. And now for our final and most important section, becoming a republic. Now, Barbados have gone from what's called a constitutional monarchy to a parliamentary republic. And whilst we might be thinking, oh, it's 2021, you know, 55 years after 1966 and their independence, you know, what's happened in that time? I think maybe from the outside looking in, it seems a bit sudden. It might seem as if, you know, it's like a conversation that's happened over the past few years and then come to fruition. However, I really want to track this history um, of these conversations of becoming a republic because they actually have been existing since 1979. And that was a very long time ago. That was like 13 years after independence. Um, these conversations about becoming a parliamentary republic have been occurring. So a constitutional monarchy is essentially a system of government that sees a monarchy or a monarch sharing power with a constitutionally organised government and for it to be constitutionally organised, it would be like organised under some kind of system. And in this case, in the case of Barbados, it would have been a parliamentary system um, with a democracy. Um, and the monarch might be the de facto head of state or purely ceremonial. Um, and that is what they kind of were in Barbados. It was kind of ceremonial, more so than the queen actually having power um, to do things in Barbados. Um, and the constitution allocates the rest of the government's power to the judiciary and the legislature. Another famous constitutional monarchy is Britain. Um, it means essentially that we have a head of state, the Queen. Um, they have the ability to pass legislation. Um, however, obviously our Queen doesn't. She just essentially passes in what's been kind of voted on by Parliament and passes those laws ceremoniously in a way. She technically does have the power to do more, but it's not her role kind of thing. It's like a unspoken or spoken agreement that she just doesn't get involved with things um although when a prime minister the one that we have right now in 2021 lied to her um you know investigations had to occur and stuff so yeah um we are in a constitutional monarchy right now in britain um barbados was in a constitutional monarchy with the same queen as her head of state and are now in a parliamentary republic which is actually um just kind of slightly different to other government systems and, and slightly confusing in a way because there are so many variations in different kind of government systems and honestly the research for this really did blow my mind in terms of trying to like get my head around everything but I just wanted to give some examples of other parliamentary republics Trinidad and Tobago now having a very similar history to Caribbean islands that were colonised um, essentially in the end by the British. They have been a parliamentary republic since 1976. They got rid of the uh, Queen the monarch, as their monarch head of state all the way back in 1976. And as I mentioned, you know, um, even in Barbados, these, 
these conversations have actually been happening since the 70s, 79 in the case of Barbados, and I'm sure prior, um, but on record I have 79. Um, and so I think it's important to, to know that there are other Caribbean islands that have already done this, essentially. Um, this isn't something that is, like, new or they've kind of, like, pioneered not to take anything away from Barbados, but it's a conversation that islands have been having. Um, and they are now exercising their right to do just that. Other countries that are parliamentary republics, um, India, Italy, Malta, um, Singapore, South Africa, Switzerland, Turkey, um, Latvia, Lebanon, um, Hungary, Greece, Germany, Finland, Ethiopia, um, Bulgaria, Croatia, Bangladesh. So just to give you a range, because I know that I have people listening from all over the world. Shout out to all of you. Spotify rap told me that you are in 45 countries, which is insane to me. So, you know, maybe you can compare this to your own political system, which you probably know a lot better than the Barbados political system, because I don't even think people there might get it um, from some of the people I've spoken to anyway. So, in a parliamentary republic, um, the legislature, who are the kind of people that make the laws, um, i.e. councils, you know, the the people, the MPs, whoever, however the system is kind of specifically designed, um, they're part of the government that makes the laws, and they also give power to the executive, which is a part of government that enforces the laws. Um, and this is kind of the most basic form of it. The difference is how this legislature gets its power. Um, if it was like a full monarchy, then it would have been, they would get their power by birth um, and the quote-unquote divine right to rule. However, um, in a parliamentary republic, people obviously choose who they're going to vote for in an election. And then this means that the executive gets their power from the legislature, which is the people elected to kind of form the laws and create the new laws or uphold the old laws um, and they get their power from the people essentially um, and because the people are voting for their MPs um, then they have essentially power of representation so it's like kind of um, in in the UK now you vote for your MP um, whether that be in a local election or a, na- a national election um, and then they go forward to then vote for their leader um, and in this case, it will be the fact by the fact that if you voted for, say, the Labour Party, Labour Party MPs, then we'll go and vote for their leader of the Labour Party if there wasn't one in place already. And then the person that wins the most seats, whether it's Labour or Conservative, that leader becomes the uh, prime minister of the country. And it's the same thing for Barbados at the moment. The difference is then when we think about the role of Sandra Mason, Um, as kind of the head of state, how that then works. So, if I am correct, Dame Sandra Mason was nominated by Prime Minister Mia Motley and also opposition leader in Barbados, Joseph Atherley, to become the first president of Barbados. She was elected by both houses without opposition. So this essentially means that As people of Barbados, you vote for your kind of MP or your council leader, your representative. They have a leader of their party. Those leaders of those parties put forward a president who is the um, head of state, the chief executive, 
the sole head of state in Barbados and the role is quite ceremonial more so than actually like you know getting in the mix of the politics um and it's kind of similar to the role that was governor general in the past governor general is again like the leader on the soil of that country that answers to the monarch in britain in this case um so jamaica still have governor generals um because they are still a constitutional monarchy um and so Yes, Dame Sandra Mason, um, she took office when she was sworn in as president, the first one, on the 30th of November, only last week, um, on the 55th anniversary of their independence. Um, and I'm just going to give a little bit more detail about what that role will actually entail for her. Okay, so as president, um, she is almost always bound by convention to exercise power this executive power that she has, on the advice of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. So, very similar to, like, the British sovereign monarch person. Um, They reign, but they do not rule. Um, And executive authority is exercised by the Prime Minister and their Cabinet on behalf of the President. So, the President, they reign um, in a kind of more ceremonial way. They aren't, you know, the rule of law, shall we say. The president is also commander in chief of the Barbados Defence Force, the armed forces um, in the country. Um, And their judicial powers are that they have the right to appoint judges on the joint recommendation of the prime minister and leader of the opposition and also pardon offenders. Um, They can um, dissolve parliament um, and obviously will do that in the need of a general election, which will have been told to them by the prime minister and leader of the opposition. Um, so they are always kind of working to be the mouthpiece of the cabinet um, and the kind of leaders of the country, the leader, prime minister and the leader of the opposition. Their role is to essentially ceremonially do all the things that they need to do and kind of sign off on things it's like they're the like executive. They are the like CEO, but they aren't really a hands on kind of person in the country. It's essentially very similar to um, kind of what they had before, but the fact that they don't have a monarch means that it's somebody that is voted in or, you know, selected by the leaders which are voted in by the people, i.e. an actual democracy. Like, having a monarchy, I'm sorry, is not a democracy because it's just based off of the people that are the descendants of the monarch at the time, and I'm sorry, but the descendants of the monarch right now are actual mess. So the fact that they are our like head of state and will be the head of state um, until I don't ever think this country would ever like overturn the monarchy, you know, we, we, like that family. Sorry, we've got alleged paedophiles, sexual abusers. I know it's not for me, um, but that's not the point. We're talking about Barbados right now, um, and. Dame Sandra Mason is going to be a fantastic president. She was governor general before, which means that she was like the representation of the monarch in Barbados. So she knows what she's doing. You know, she's kind of done a very similar role before. And also, more importantly, and I just want to stress this because I think it's extremely important. um, And you might not think so, but this is a black woman. Now, forget the fact that she's a woman for a sec. She's black. She looks like the average Barbadian. You know, she has been through what Barbadian people have been through. Her history, her lineage is the same as theirs. And now she represents them truly down to her history and her her looks. 
she is going to be so much better as a representative for that country as opposed to the queen who cannot even resonate with anything i'm sorry that the the people of barbados will ever go through in any way shape or form and just to stress the importance of this point just a little bit more i have um, a transcript from a podcast interview on npr with ari shapiro who was talking with kareem smith who is a journalist with barbados today um, about the country removing the queen as a head of state and what that means for barbadians moving forward um, and one of the questions was, you know, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about the first president, Dame Sandra Mason, because she's a history making figure as well. Um, and Kareem Smith said, and I will quote, um, first of all, I think what's really exciting about Sandra Mason is the fact that apart from being a born Barbadian who looks like the average Barbadians, she's also been able to identify with the Barbadian struggle. She came up within a working class family in rural Barbados. She went through the public primary and secondary education systems and she benefited from the free education that was on offer at the University of the West Indies. She was the first woman to be called to the Barbados Bar as a practising attorney. She served as the first magistrate to become a diplomat um, and really becoming the first president of Barbados is the culmination of everything that she stands for and really she is a glowing symbol of the Barbadian dream that despite not being born into some kind of hereditary sovereignty like the Queen or inheriting a massive amount of wealth, you can still aspire to serve within the highest offices in Barbados. And I think to me, this is what this is all about. That is just beautiful, essentially, because I don't know, I think to I think to Jamaica, sorry to throw, throw the island under the bus a bit, but the fact that Dame Sandra Mason has even gone through the education system in the Caribbean. A lot of Jamaican leaders and other countries, they don't even do that. They go to, you know, the Oxfords, the Cambridges for their university education or to America. They aren't educated. They aren't a product wholly of the country that they are now serving. Dame Sandra Mason is wholly a product of the Caribbean, of Barbados, through the primary, secondary education She's been in a working class family in rural Barbados. She knows what their struggles are like. And while she doesn't necessarily have the power to exercise laws to help or hinder these people, she is a representation of all of those things. And I think, I always think about the children, but, you know, for children looking up and not now having to look at the Queen as their head of state, thinking they can absolutely never aspire to that, and even if they did marry into the royal family, God forbid, they might be treated like Meghan Markle, so why would they do that? But, you know what I mean, they can actually aspire to, as um, Kareem Smith said, the highest offices in Barbados. That's how it should be. These countries should be self-governing, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I'm going to now go back through the history of why it's 2021 that this has happened and not 1979, because it's taken a certain mindset of the people for this to actually become... A reality. Okay, so our final section talking about this little history of the fact that it's taken a very long time for this to happen. Now, 1979, there was a commission of inquiry known as the Cox Commission on the Constitution, um, and it was charged with studying the feasibility of introducing a new Republican system. Wow, 1979, same conversation. Um, the Cox Commission came to the conclusion that Barbadians preferred to maintain a constitutional monarchy and the proposal to move to a republic status was not pursued. So 
We have several occasions now from 1979 in Barbados' history where conversations and actual inquiries and, you know, research was done whether or not the people would be happy to move away from a constitutional monarchy and they just weren't. The mindset was not there and it's very important because whilst we think as people we don't have power um, and in some cases it really feels that way, you know, public opinion is so important with something as big as this because if they did it and people were like really like why have you done that you know this new system of government would lose kind of legitimacy because it was just forced upon them in the same way that a monarchy would have been and so in 1979 you know the people of Barbados the colonial roots were so strong I think they were the mindset was not there and I think this is the issue with some of the other Caribbean islands that are still uh, constitutional monarchies they are still in a mindset that we need the British. We need these leaders to support and help us still. And we need to look up to a queen. Um, and that is coming from a long legacy of colonialism, slavery, and essentially just having a ruler that's not from the country that you're in, especially with the racial element of, you know, the queen's obviously a white woman and colonization occurred by white people and enslaved African people this idea that you need a white person to run your country for you or be that kind of head of state that figurative leader is very it's not good since it's a bit smelly if I can put it very informally it's smelly so back to Barbados 1979 they obviously had that conversation and it was decided nope february 2005 government of barbados announced that it wanted to hold a referendum on this republic issue just like a brexit referendum they were going to vote about it and they introduced a referendum bill the bill was passed into law um, and it didn't set a date for the referendum but it said that referendum day um, would be proclaimed by the governor general so that's the kind of like Queen's representative in Barbados and the kind of leader-ish, not the democratically elected leader, the figurative leader under the monarch, representing the monarch. Um, that had to take place no more than 90 days, no less than 60 days from the day of proclamation. Um, and the question was going to be, so when you vote yes or no, you'd be voting yes or no for, do you agree with the recommendation of the Constitution Review Commission that Barbados should become a parliamentary republic with the head of state of Barbados being a president who is a citizen of Barbados, an actual citizen of Barbados. Um, and Owen Arthur, as Prime Minister at the time, publicly stated, and I quote, and this is so interesting to me, because I this is not something I've ever forgotten, but let me just say it first. He said, Heaven forbid, but if Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth were to die, if Prince Charles and Prince William were to die, I would have a fundamental difficulty swearing allegiance to King Harry. Yes, Prince Harry, King Harry. The comment came shortly after uh, Prince Harry had actually attended a public function in fancy dress wearing a Nazi armband, which was in January 2005, which people have forgotten. A lot of people have forgotten, not saying you shouldn't. But this um, Prime Minister of Barbados, 2005, Owen Arthur, he was like, absolutely not. At this point as well, I don't think... Yeah, William wasn't married and didn't have children either, so Harry was next in line after William. Um, this idea that, you know, they were kind of happy to, to like, 
be under the Queen or be under Prince Charles, maybe Prince William, but Harry, absolutely not. Um, Mia Motley was Deputy Prime Minister for Barbados at the time. She said, uh, we feel it's the right thing to do to have a Barbadian head of state. We accept that there was concern that government alone should not make the decision in this day and age, therefore committed to expressing our views to the public and having them pass judgment on it. Um, so, yeah, they they wanted the people to vote. Mia Motley, obviously, being a proponent for this um, democratic republic for a very long time. Also, on reflection, thinking about it, um, the comments made about Harry not wanting Harry to be um, the leader, like, that wouldn't technically happen. I mean, we, the Queen is still the leader. This was said in 2005, which was 15 years ago. So I'm not sure if Owen Arthur was kind of insinuating this idea that we should get out of being a um, monarchy, under the monarchy, constitutional monarchy, because we might run the risk of having someone like Harry as king and leader of head of state technically in Barbados so we should get out of it now before we even get to that potential possibility um even though it was a while away and I don't now it won't probably happen I don't think we'll see Harry as king um I don't know if he'd well he's left the royal family I don't know how it all works um politics um and monarchies are not my strong suit I'm a social historian I like the people the real people that make up the countries and actually work and you know no shade anyway let's move on so that referendum that was set to be held in August 2008, after lots of conversation, it was actually deferred. Um, in 2007, it was decided that it, it wouldn't take place. Um, and so that referendum didn't happen. But again, you've got to think about it. In the public conscience of the people, these were the conversations that were happening. It's just like with Brexit. There was actually a referendum in 1975 about Brexit and the UK voted to stay. So... That was in certain people's conscience. Then when we kind of fast forward to like 2000 and was it 2010 onwards where, you know, certain parties started to get all hit up about the EU was doing this, that and the other to Britain and, you know, we weren't getting a good deal and we needed a reform and then reform turned into leaving and then that turned into Brexit and then here we are now. Um, you know, it's kind of sowing the seeds. From 1979, you're sowing the seeds into the conscience of the people to suggest, hmm, Maybe we should think about leaving at some point. Um, and obviously, we remember Trinidad, 1976. They um, became a parliamentary republic, whereas it was 1979, the conversations kind of were peaking in Barbados. And then again, in 2015, so six years ago, the Prime Minister at the time, Frundel Stewart, announced that Barbados would move towards a Republican form of government in the, and I quote, very near future which he was right about but he hoped it would be around 2016 which would coincide with the 50th anniversary of Barbadian independence um however this didn't happen again um it didn't go through um because this time two-thirds um according to the country's constitution you need a two-thirds majority in parliament to authorize any kind of changes or laws the democratic labor party um, had a two-thirds majority in the Senate of Barbados, but not in the House of Assembly. So, um, and that's where they would have needed the support of opposition, Barbados Labour Party, to approve the transition, but that didn't happen. So now, when we fast forward to 2020, Prime Minister Mia Motley is very well aware that she has the correct majorities in both the House um, of Assembly and the Senate of Barbados. 
So, you know, knowing from 2005, this was an ambition. This is what she wanted to see for Barbados. Um, and Mia Motley, if you've listened to anything she said about climate change, reparations, the British. Oh, I love her. She speaks my language um, in its purest form. And I just think she is oh fantastic. I just think she's what leaders should be. She truly cares about the interests of her nation. And I think that is just the most admirable thing. Um, and it just doesn't sound like rocket science. You'd expect a leader to actually care about the people of the country that they're serving. But I don't think we have that here. So I really, really do enjoy Mia Motley. Um, but essentially, um, she knows that in 2020, um, she has majorities. Um, and so they decided that within the cabinet, they would become a parliamentary republic by the 30th of November this year. Um, and accepted the recommendations of the Ford Commission, which was an inquiry done. Um, and yeah, it, it it was to happen. And now you might be thinking, well, were the people in, on board, you know? Well, after 2020 um, and this global Black Lives Matter movement that happened after the murder of George Floyd, the country's eyes were opened and I think a lot of people's mindsets were changed. Because we were looking at white supremacy in its most insidious form. To kill a man in broad daylight on the street as an officer of law. Um, and I think a lot of black people globally were shaken up at that. I think people generally, white people as well, all races, um, were a bit shaken up because of the fact that, like, how can this happen? This is literally recorded, we can see it in broad daylight. Um, and the protests that happened as a result just showed had a fact that people were not going to be okay with this. Like, stuff like this could not fly. And so I think that switched the mindset of the Barbadian people a little bit more um, and made them, like, okay with this idea of transitioning away from of the Queen and the colony, the biggest agent of white supremacy ever to live, ever, 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 ever. Um, and so that's kind of, like, the history of this move because it's not just something that, you know, they didn't speak about it the night before and then it all happened. Um, it was it was a long standing conversation, and the fact that you know you've got Prince Charles who goes to do the ceremonial handover on behalf of his mum, um, because she's I don't think she can travel. I don't think she's the best um in health that she's been, um, and also you know, it's he's she's she's an old lady, um. So yeah, Prince Charles goes there, and he even notes the fact that you know there has been a history of slavery enslavement. Um, and the royal family, the monarchy, the English throne has a huge part to play in that. Didn't apologise, though, um, in that. Didn't apologise for the monarchy's role in sustaining it. An apology is, and I might be saying this wrong, it's, in my opinion, an admission of guilt. And an admission of guilt leads to an opening for cause of reparations. This is why the American government have never apologised for slavery on its own soil. The British monarchy will probably never do that either because it does open up a can of worms for reparations. Actually, it's not a can of worms, it's a pot of gold um, for these island nations, which I think they deserve, but we're not going to have a reparations debate on this episode today. I don't think we'll ever have one, so I don't understand the economics of how it would work and the kind of impact. I think it's a very complicated procedure, but I do think there needs to be some kind of reparations. But that is another important point to make about this um, move of Barbados, because... If the Queen is head of state of your country, can you really go and ask for reparations 
which Mia Motley has, she's brought up this topic before, we know it's on her mind. Um, I don't see how you can then go and go to them for reparations when they're your leader. Now they're not. I think the legitimacy and the claims for reparations are even stronger. Um, and I think you should watch this space for what might occur and come from Barbados in the next few years in regards to this past and this um, legacy of slavery that clearly exists on the island. And that is pretty much everything I think I had to say about Barbados. I want to talk about Christmas traditions next week. This has been, I think this is more of a happy history. I've enjoyed um, thinking about the future of Caribbean islands. And when I think about what it means for other islands, I think it means that they can make the leap and they can do it quite peacefully. You know, there wasn't any objection from the British monarchy. There wasn't any problems, tensions. Um, Prince Charles went over there to do the changeover of power, you know, Bad Galriri was given um, national hero status um, and Sandra Mason, Dame Sandra Mason is the rightful president and it's just a great representation of, of Barbadian people and what you can achieve coming from a nation like that. So I'm I'm at peace with everything that's happened there. Not that it's of <laughs> any importance to me as a Jamaican living in Britain, but I think the right thing was done and I personally would love to see other Caribbean islands and other former colonial states um do the same thing one thing we haven't spoken about is the fact that they're still in the commonwealth and i'm not too sure of the reasons for that but it's food for thought for you and your own homework to do some research on because i have spoken enough today um but thank you so much for listening and i hope you all have a wonderful week goodbye thank you for listening to the history hotline if you've enjoyed this episode please tell a friend to tell a friend to continue the conversation about black history head over to our social media platforms at the history hotline on instagram and at the history hl on twitter